The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. This was written in about 60 AD, and this is 2020. But listen to what he says. He says in verse 7 of this is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things, this is quite literally what it says, the end of all things has drawn near. The end of all things has drawn near. Something's changed. It's as though we've come right up to a precipice and there's nothing in between us and the end, which is the coming of Jesus Christ. So he says, the end of all things has drawn near, therefore. Now, as I said before, when you see therefore, you should always ask, ask what is that therefore? You could translate this thus. In other words, this is what we ought to do. This is who we ought to be because the end of all things has drawn near. And he mentions four things. This is what the Father says that we ought to be because we are living at this particular time. And it's been this way since, since uh, 64 AD. The end of all things has drawn near. And what we are supposed to do is to live like this. Listen to what he says. He says, um, therefore... Be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Think clearly for the purpose of prayers. Uh, it doesn't say that in this translation, but in the original, it actually says prayers, plural. And anytime the word prayer is in a plural, it's in a plural form, it means prayer meetings or prayer get-togethers. Do you ever go to somebody's house just to pray? Do you ever meet up with people just to pray? We used to call those prayer meetings, but nobody would come, and so we stopped calling them that. Because it's so important. That's who we are. We, in this last days, we are to be communities that pray. And so people ought to be able to come here and know that we're going to pray. And then he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. You remember uh, Jesus uh, was asked, what's the greatest commandment of all. And he said, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We have been called to love each other. And he says that love covers a multitude of sins. He doesn't mean that you, it doesn't mean that you cover it up and hide it. He means that you loving people is going to affect them. It's going to bring changes to their lives. It's going to affect the way that they relate to the living God. And then he says, above all, I'm sorry, in verse nine, he says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, hospitable means you share your life, you share your stuff, you share everything that you are. You open your home, you open your heart, and you invite people in. And he says, this is, what we, this is the kind of community we should be, one that is hospitable, without complaint. I love that, without complaint. The word complaint is kind of a picture word, and it means, the, it actually comes from a word meaning the cooing of doves, and it means, you know how it is? When you're trying to be hospitable, but you're talking to each other, when are they going to leave? How long is this going to take? He says, without any complaining, share who you are and what you are and what you have with others. And then he says, and as each one has received a spiritual gift. What that is, is that's a statement of fact. It isn't saying, if, if you have received a spiritual gift, gift, it isn't saying that. It's saying since every one of you has received a spiritual gift, this is what you're supposed to do with it since we are living in the last days. Since the end of all things is drawn near. 
And this is what we are to do. He says, whoever, he says, use your, use your gift that you've been given as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. In other words, if God's given you a gift in which you speak, you should recognize that God is going to move you to speak, and these are his words he wants you to communicate with others. I think one of the most powerful things you can do is when somebody's suffering is simply tell them that you love them and you care about them, and you know they're going through something difficult, because that's exactly how God is. Remember, we saw this in, in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 5, that we are supposed to buy up every opportunity to be a servant of Christ. Being a servant of Christ is, is serving in a way that he would if he were here. So he says we should buy up every opportunity. There are people that come into your life, cross your path. They need Christ to speak to them. They need Christ to minister to them. And you are that servant of Christ that he wants you to do. And so he says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving in the strength which God supplies. The word supplies, you know what a choreographer is? It's, it's the word choreography. It's, it literally sounds like it. It's, the Greek word is choreage. It means it's the word from which we get our word choreograph. You know what a choreographer does? He shows people how they're supposed to move together. And he says, so if, you have, if God's given you the gift of service, a gift that is serving, then you are to do it as, with the strength that God supplies you. He will energize you. He will give you the resources you need in order to serve. And so he says... This is so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. It's so that he gets glory. Now, I want to show you, uh, this, is this, this is what we're looking at. The end of all things is drawn near. So what kind of church should we become since the end of all things is drawn near? We're last day's church. You know, there's, a, there's something you'll run into when you read literature of the New Testament, about the New Testament, and that is that the Holy Spirit is an eschatological spirit. He's the eschatological spirit. The word eschatological or eschatology means last. And it comes out of Acts chapter 2. If you remember when Peter was preaching and he said, this is that which Joel prophesied. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. That's what he's talking about. He is the eschatological spirit. He marked the end of all things. The reason we have come come right up to the edge of the end of all things that is drawn near is because Christ is coming back and nobody knows the date. Don't buy those books because nobody knows the date, but he's coming back and we can expect him at any time. But we are in the meantime to live as last days people in the power of the last days spirit, the eschatological spirit, the spirit who was given in the last days because we face things that are different from every other phase of God's program in this world. And so this is what we're supposed to do. Now, so this is the kind of church we're supposed to be. Now, how is it that the end of all things has come? Well, first of all, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Remember that? That's one verse you know for sure, right? God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's happened. Christ has come. He has died for your sins. You don't have to tell somebody, Jesus is going to die for your sins. You can say, Jesus died for your sins. 
and we are past that mark. That was in 33 AD, and here we are in 2020. Can you believe it? And then secondly, because the Son has fulfilled all righteousness in order to finish the Father's work. Now, that is, that's right out of Matthew 3.15. Let me explain what this is saying. When Jesus went to be baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist had been sent for a very specific purpose, to prepare the people of Israel for the Messiah. And the way that they would prepare is to be baptized by John, baptized in water, which pictured their cleansing, that they wanted to receive the Messiah who was coming. Well, when Jesus went to be baptized by John the Baptist, John says, because he kept on saying, there's one coming after me whose who's thong of whose sandal I'm not even... I'm not even good enough to, to kneel down and untie. And so he says to Jesus, I, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, we have to do this to fulfill all righteousness of the Father. That is, the Father has put this in his word that I'll be baptized by you. And so he submits to the baptism of John. And then because Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I love this passage. Hebrews 9.26 says, Once at the consummation of the ages, Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Nobody else could do that. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You've heard over the years people claim that they're going to get rid of the national debt. Different leaders have said they're going to get rid of the national debt. And you know they haven't gotten rid of it. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself once at the consummation of the ages. He did it by dying on the cross one time. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself so that we can have life and salvation through faith in him. I want to say something to you that I I keep meaning to say that I want to say it now. The most important thing about you as a Christian is your faith in the Father. It's your confidence in him. It's your trust in the Father. Do you trust him? Do you actually trust him? You see, the reason we became believers is we trusted the testimony of the Father about his son. He claimed, the Father claimed that he was sending the son so that he could die for our sins and to bring us into a right relationship with him. We would become children of God. We would know him as father, and he would give us the spirit so that we could actually express that. And so Jesus put put away sin by the sacrifice of himself at the high point of the ages. I like to define that by this. It's, It's like the last click in a combination lock. This consummation of the ages means this is the last thing that had to be put in place in order for the end days events to take place. You know, the next thing we may, we may experience may be the coming of Jesus Christ. And we're told in 1 Thessalonians that what's going to happen is we're not going to precede those who have died. All those followers of Christ who have died are going to be raised from the dead, and then we'll together with them be caught up to meet him in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Don't you love that expression? We will always be with the Lord. <laughs> we're going to always be with him for all eternity. Well, he put away sin once and for all for you. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in Romans chapter 8, it talks about how nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And he goes through this whole litany of things that 
you would think could separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What I think would separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus are this, is myself, but I can't. Can't be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Once he has given this to you, it's yours for all eternity. And then fourth, because I'm, what I'm saying is this is how the end of all things has happened is because Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended back to the Father. Now, if you remember, when he saw the Father, the Father said to him, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, sit here and reign until I give you freedom to rule over everything in this universe. And so we, Jesus was raised from the dead and he ascended to the Father and he sat down at his right hand. And then because the king that is Jesus is now on his throne. Jesus is on his throne. He's on the right, at the right hand of the Father, reigning with the Father over everything. And then number six, the eschatological spirit, and it's called that because of the statement in Acts chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, he quotes Joel, the prophet Joel 2, saying this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, who said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. This is God speaking. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. I love this. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men, young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams. There's going to be the spirit of God is actually going to work in your life. Isn't that something? And that took place on the day of Pentecost. So here we are. This is 2020. We are that far away from the day of Pentecost, where 3,000 3, people came to faith in Christ. And now there's, there's supposedly 2.2 billion people who name themselves as Christians. 2.2 billion. Somebody was telling me about a house fellowship that had 100 people in it. And I was thinking, wow, what kind of a house could you meet in? Couldn't meet in my house. Well, you could meet out on the pasture. But imagine 2.2 billion people. They're going to be caught up to be with Christ. Now, I don't know if all those people are saved. Those people have professed Christ. They identify themselves as being followers of Jesus Christ. And so the eschatological spirit has been poured out. That's one of the reasons that we are now. The, the end of all things has come close. It's almost like we've come right to this place here, right on the edge, and we're waiting for Christ to come. So we shouldn't be setting dates. We should be living in expectation expectation that Jesus is coming. And then seven, we are now to live in the last hour. We now live in the last hour, according to 1 John 2, 18. And we await the final event of God's, in God's plan, the return of the high king of heaven. That's who's coming, the high king of heaven. That's what he's called. The high king of heaven is coming. And so we live, according to John, now this is John the apostle. He's about 90 years old when he says this. And so you're thinking, well, maybe he's got a memory problem or something. No, he's speaking in the power of the Spirit, and he says, we're living in the last hour. You've heard it said that many antichrists are going to, and that antichrist is coming, but he says, right now, there are many antichrists. This was in, this was before 100 AD. And so this is happening, and then notice this. This is Luke chapter 19, verse 37, 30, and 38 and 39. He says, as soon as he was he was approaching the descent of the Mount of Olives. If you don't recognize this, what this is is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
Jesus goes into Jerusalem with his followers, and it says this is what happened. As soon as he was approaching the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples, these are his followers, those who believe that he's the king of Israel. His disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. They had actually laid their eyes on as Jesus performed miracles. They saw the evidence that he was the king of kings and Lord of lords. And they were shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Have you ever shouted hallelujah or something like that? I've mentioned this before, but 29 times in the Old Testament, it tells us to shout to the Lord in joy. Joyfully shout to the Lord. Well, they were. As they were following him, they shouted to the Lord, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then notice this, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because they're claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And they think that's baloney. And so they wanted Jesus to shut them up and tell them not to say this. And this is is how Jesus responds. He says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. (laughs) Because he is the king of glory. And when he entered into Jerusalem, it was this last action of saying, receive me as Messiah. And they refused. They even wanted him to shut up his, his disciples so they wouldn't be saying this kind of thing. And then notice this. So what should his churches be as they wait his return? Just what I said as I read through the chapter. First of all, we should be praying communities. That's what we should be. We should be praying communities. And here's what he tells you. This is how, you, this is how we do it. We have to come sober and alert. Now, he's not talking about being drunk. He's talking about having our minds in the right spot so that we know that when we come together, we are here to pray. That's one of the things we're here for, is to pray. And so there will be people that you will meet that need you to pray for them. This is a place, a church is a place where people should be able to come and know that someone could step up to them and say, can I pray for you? Now, you might want to wait until they start telling you what they're going through. Uh, I... I, t- I see uh, Denise just about every day because she's working at the office. And I'm going to tell you, losing a husband is a very difficult thing. I happen to know this because my sister lost her husband about the same age as Denise lost her husband. And I know that's been one of the most difficult things for her to go through. It's just so hard, so difficult. And so what is that? Well, it means we have an opportunity to reach out. We have an opportunity to be a servant of Christ we have the opportunity to tell people that we really care about them and we know what you're going through and we pray for you. We call your name. We take your name before the Lord continually. That's what, it, that's what we're supposed to be because we're a last day's church. Does that make sense? The end of all things is drawn near. Therefore, this is what you ought to be, a praying church. Secondly, a loving community, our loving church, a loving community of people. Above all, Love one another fervently from the heart because love covers a multitude of sins. And as I said, that doesn't mean you cover it up. Sometimes the loving thing to do is to tell a person, you do know that what you're doing is in rebellion against God, don't you? You do understand that, right? Because he's commanded you to do this, and you're refusing to do this. 
But what is going on is, is that we should love people. Uh, I think we should tell people, you know what? I hope you don't do this. I hope you don't carry this through. I would really be sad if you did, but I will not love you any less because God has given me a love for you as he has all those that he's placed in our lives. And then the third thing is we should be welcoming communities. That's hospitality. We used to, every year, there was a, we were meeting in Liberty, and uh, there was always the 4th of July, what do they call that, corn fest? They called it the corn fest, remember that? So we couldn't get into the facility. So we met out behind our barn, <laughs> and we put up this big cover. In fact, as Jeff Gleason would always help me with this, and he would put up this huge cover to sit under. And then we would stand up right behind the barn, and we, had, we would sing together, and I would preach and do everything that we do when we meet together as God's people. It was wonderful, because we were, we were experiencing life together. A lot of churches, what they do when they talk about small groups, they talk about groups that meet together either in a home or a restaurant or somewhere else, wherever it is that it works for you to meet, that you meet and be with fellow believers. Because this is what we have been called to be, a welcoming community. And then fourth, we are to be serving communities. Now, I want to spend just a little bit of time on this. This is what he says when he says... uh, In verse 10, as each one has received a special gift. I want to emphasize something here. This doesn't say, and if anyone has received a gift, it doesn't say that. He says, as each one, that means every single believer has received a gift, employ it. Employ it. Well, you know know what employ means? What does it mean? It means use your gift, right? But he tells you what to use it for. He says, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, some of you guys have been in, in uh, unions, and so you have a shop steward, and you understand that this shop steward has a responsibility. I don't even know what it is, but in the, at this time in the life of people in, in Israel, for example, one of the servants of a household would be a steward, and it would be his responsibility to take all that the master has provided for the people in the household and to distribute it to them. I know what that's like. I know what it's like that when you have a household, the master of the household's responsibility was to meet the needs of the people in that household. And so one of the, ser- one of the servants was a steward, and he was to dispense that which the, the master of the house provided for the people. And he would distribute these things. And so what, what Peter does, he says... The gift that you have is to distribute the grace of God, the manifold grace of God. The word manifold is the same word that was used in the Old Testament when it described the, the coat of Joseph. Remember that his father gave him, the multicolored coat? And it was to, it, what he, the reason he did that was it was to express his love for his son, that he was special to him. He, he, he let his brothers know that he was highly loved, that Joseph was highly loved. So he gives him a multicolored coat. Well, he says, we are to dispense God's grace, which is multicolored. That is, it is everything we need. God tells us that he has given us a gift so that we can distribute God's grace to God's people. Now, I know what most of us do is we think in terms of the way Paul describes spiritual gifts. He lists how many? How many gifts does he mention? Actually, it's more than that. There's 20 
gifts, 20 different gifts that Paul mentions. Peter says there's two kinds of gifts. You either have a speaking gift or a serving gift. I like that better, don't you? I can remember two a lot easier than 20. He, he's given us, each one of us, a gift. And that gift is either a gift that's in the realm of serving or in the realm of speaking. And we are to dispense his grace through that gift that he has given to us. And so he says, this is what we ought to be, a serving community, a supernatural serving community. We are to use the gift that God has given us individually to distribute God's grace to other people. Now, if you're having trouble figuring out, well, how do I do that? How do I distribute grace? Grace is what God has without any limitations on it. God is a God of grace, and he wants you to dispense his grace to his people. You know, some, there are some Christians who don't understand. They have no sense of what God has done for them. They don't, they don't understand the gravity, the glory of all that God has done for them. And it's your job to dispense his grace so that they will know. It's my job to dispense his grace so that they will know. That's what God's called us to. So this is the kind of communities we ought to be. This is the kind of community we ought to be. A praying community, a loving community, a welcoming community, and a serving community. Serving supernaturally with the gift that he has given us. I found over the years, it, you know, they used to have these little tests, and they were just personality tests, really is what they were, skills tests, to try to determine what your gift was. I found the best way to find out what a person's gift is. What you do is you ask their spouse. They know. They know because they have seen that spouse when he has dispensed the grace of God, and it's very tempting to harp on them to continue to do that. I love the fact that we can see this in one another. We can see the strength in other people. I know what my wife's gift is because I've seen her dispense God's grace with it. And God wants you to dispense his grace to fellow believers with the very gift that he has given you so that you have the ability to dispense his grace. Sometimes it's the simplest kind of thing, simply telling people the truth about the situation they're in. And, and what the whole picture is, and what God is going to do. And this is, this is the kind of community we're supposed to be. I hope you get this, because he's saying, the end of all things has drawn near. I mean, we're, we're sitting here, we're, this was back in 63 or 64 AD, but here we are in 2020, and we are living in this period of time when the end of all things has already drawn near. That's what it says. It's a perfect tense, which means it, it drew near and it remains there right now. We're right there on the verge. There's nothing in the big picture that has to happen before Christ comes back. Christ is coming back, and he wants us to be busy dispensing his grace and loving one another and praying for one another and serving each other. That's what he wants us to be doing. This is the kind of communities he wants. This is, this is God's, these are God's, uh, what he says are important for the church. It isn't, it, I'm so glad we're getting a building we're getting close to the end, and closer than we were 10 years ago anyway, but uh, we're getting close. And so as we think about it, that's wonderful, but I want to tell you there's something so much more important than that building, and it's the people. We are living stones. That's the way Peter puts it in the, back in chapter 2. We are living stones that are being built into a household of faith. And so God wants us to be 
exactly what we are. We are a people who make up a praying community, a loving community, a welcoming community, and a serving community. And he wants us to be that. I know that sometimes when you talk about spiritual gifts, I've found over the years that people get nervous. What are you expecting of me? Oh, all I'm expecting is for God to work in your life and to use you to dispense his grace into the lives of people. Sometimes it's just a word. Sometimes it's simply an action. I love the fact that God choreographs his people in doing his will. He gives you the energy to do what he wants you to do. Sometimes you don't feel like it, huh? I didn't feel like it this morning. I got up and I was so sleepy, I couldn't. I woke up at 3. I tried to stay in bed until about 4. I finally got up. And then I was so tired because I didn't drink coffee. I drank some uh, tea and put some honey in it because my voice is so bad. And uh, don't say amen. But Anyway, I was so tired. I didn't know if I could even come down here. But then I realized something. You know what? This is the best place to be, to be weak and to know it. Because when we're weak, that's when he's strong. And he's got you here. And he wants you, he wants you to do just what he says. He wants us to be a praying community. So let's pray right now. Let me pray. Father, we bow our hearts together. We know about the needs, not only in this flock, but in the families of people here. We want to ask you again for Samantha Water, uh, Winters, Father, that you would touch her. Raise her up, strengthen her, Father, supernaturally heal her, we pray. We thank you that you have the power to heal. You have the power to save people from the most, the most difficult circumstances. And we ask you, Father, to heal her and raise her up. Father, we ask you for Denise, that you would comfort her heart. I know this is such a hard loss, but God, I pray that you would fill her heart with a sense of your love for her. It's one of the things I remember so vividly about Jeff, that he had those times when he knew that God loved him and it was overwhelming to him. He could hardly contain it. And I pray that you would do that in Denise's life, in her girl's life, in their son's life. Father, please work in a supernatural way. Demonstrate your mighty power and your love for us, we pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us this job, this glorious privilege to pray and to serve, and to minister to your people. We pray that we'd be faithful in doing that. God, we thank you for the way that you have manifested your grace in our lives in a myriad of ways. We're so grateful, Father, for your love for us. And we pray that as we, as we uh, talk together, as we spend a little bit of time together, and then we go on our way, we pray that you would use us for your glory, that we, we could be seen as the real people of God, we, we are so weak, and yet you're so strong, and we are so grateful for that. Father, bless this congregation. Manifest your mighty power and glory and presence, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.